Thank you to Elizabeth, thank you to Will, and thank you to Corey for donating to the podcast on Patreon this week. One thing that you will not find in this podcast are advertisements, and that is thanks to people like Elizabeth, Will, and Corey. If you feel inspired to donate, you can head over to my website, kyle.surf, and click the Patreon link. Patreon is a service that allows you to donate whatever you like, $1, $10, $20 a month, and then uh, the service will automatically ding your credit card for that amount. This allows me to prioritize the podcast. It allows me to travel around and get these amazing guests, which I bring to you every week. I'm also an Amazon affiliate. So if you buy shit on Amazon, please go to my website, kyle.surf slash book club and click the Amazon link there. Uh, It doesn't cost you anything and it allows me to get a small percentage of that purchase. So just this last week, someone bought the book Sex at Dawn. Someone bought some Sharpie permanent markers. You can buy anything just using that link. And if you want to bookmark it, that would be super cool. Um, So that's an easy way to support me. It doesn't cost you anything. I just got back from Hawaii. I was initially on Oahu where I took the Big Wave Risk Assessment Group course. Um, Highly recommend that anyone who's interested in getting into Big Wave's takes this course. You will learn skills that range from CPR to basic first aid to proper techniques, picking someone up on a jet ski, and everything in between. Our lineups would be so much safer if everyone took the big wave risk assessment course. I then went over to the big island where I met up with my good buddy Justin Lee, who you will hear from shortly. Every morning, we would wake up at 3 a.m. and bow hunt until 2 p.m., where we would then take a short break for lunch and hunt more until dark. If you follow Justin on Instagram, you know that he is a professional bow hunter and spear fisherman. He can dive down to 200 feet and shoot fish. He... uh, hunts elk and axis deer and ram and pig and has an unparalleled appetite for life and adventure. What you don't get from Instagram, though, and I I hope that you get in this podcast, is a sense of what a deep thinker he is. Um, He's super smart um, and super curious and a really patient mentor. Um, You know, I, I learn a lot every time I hang out with him. And that's important. Um, I, I feel like hunting's a kind of sport like skydiving where you don't do it alone when you are uh, <laughs> when you're learning. And it's great to have Justin as a mentor. Hunting is um, I almost don't even want to call it a sport. It encompasses such a wide range of the human experience for me in a single activity. It can be boring at times. It can be highly exhilarating. It brings up deep moral and philosophical questions that I still struggle with. Um, but I think that any, any activity that brings up that much um, and forces that kind of growth is good. Um, 
I think that's what that's what attracts me uh, to hunting. You know, there there is the experience of taking an animal's life, which we tend to focus on. Um, but that's also just one small aspect of the whole experience. Learning how to read the wind and listen for subtle sounds and notice more of our natural world more deeply are also big aspects to hunting. And that's what I'm learning. Thanks to Justin Lee. Justin is a highly accessible on Instagram, so please reach out to him if you enjoy this conversation. And without further rambling, please welcome Justin Lee. Kyle Tierman here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. It's not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. He's on the grass and uh, root around in the, the cow shit and look for bugs that way. Um, but you get them. They just, uh, it's usually really, really, really warm up here. Yeah, this this is rare that um, it's so green. So right now we are sitting um, on the porch of a cabin on, um, how many acres is this property? Uh, Halo Aina is about 3,000 acres. Wow. It's just over, it's like 2960, I believe. But uh, we're at that, the cabin sits at like 4,800 feet of elevation. And it's on the, the southwest side of the Big Island. And uh, it's a dry land forest. And that's what we're doing up here is we're trying to bring back, you know, the most uh, sensitive ecosystems here on the Big Island. And that's the dry land forest. Um, just because everything moves slow out here because it doesn't get the same amount of rain as it does on the east side of the island. <clears throat> so, you know, we've got Mauna Kea, Mauna Loa, and Hualalai, which is like the three biggest mountains on the Big Island. And uh, so you get your perpetual trade winds that come from the northeast. And, you know, it's coming thousands and thousands of miles across the ocean, picking up water. And then all of a sudden hits 14,000-foot peak mountains. And all that water condenses, drops its water. Um you know, in forms of raindrops on that side of the island. And when, by the time the clouds get to this side, you know, they're either really, really high up in the sky or they've dissipated or they just become, <clears throat> uh, what is that, like rabbits and hamburgers and <laughs> spaceships or whatever your imagination can draw about them. But that's their, their useful water has already been dropped. Right, so most of the animals on this land get their water from condensation. Condensation to do in the morning. Um, because this side of the island doesn't get much of that perpetual wind, it's more thermal driven. So the land heats up and, uh, um, what's that starts drying up, basically making its own wind, bringing up the, the wind off the water. So as it's coming up, the, the wind starts blowing Malka. So you get that Malka breeze, which is up mountain. Uh, it starts slowly condensing as it gets cooler and cooler and cooler. And so you get really thick fog up here but you don't get much raindrops and uh, that fog is how this forest survives and um, so that's what we're trying to do up here is is bring back the forest because it is 
such a sensitive force and it, it really needs um, proper management um, up here, just like the rest of the island, you know. Um, but the cool thing is on this 3,000 acres, you know, it, it's privately owned. So we get to kind of do what uh, we believe and we deem necessary to bring back the forest. And uh, we purchased the property in 2010. Um, and in the last eight years, uh, we've got close to, I mean, it's pretty astonishing, we're close to a million new tree growth um, between planting and just new shoots in the ground. Um, it's It's been pretty successful. And we probably would have more if uh, we didn't have feral cows and feral horses. And um, Because you know, they root around and dig up the um, the trees that you plant, is that right? They... You know, because it's so dry out here, the grass, um, you know, it usually is. I mean, it's hard to think that now because everything's so green up here right now. But, you know, the only green feed out there is usually baby trees. And um, especially ones that we take from our greenhouse that is living life, you know, basically in a hotel. And then they get put on the real world and these cows are like, oh, my gosh. You know, we used to have these things called... I mean, not things called, they're just we the blue tubes. And it's this um, tube that you put around new seedlings uh, to promote growth. And the way it does that, it, it adds the optimal light. Um, and it collects the dew and basically protects this little tree from outside um, predators, outside um, exposure, and just kind of sets it off in its right spoon. I mean, right, gets it in the right foot uh, moving out the door. And... You know, it protects it until it gets, you know, for the first three or four years and then it gets out to the top of the um, the tube and, you know, eventually the biodegrades and the tree lives its long life. But the horses were smart enough to put two and two together that inside the blue tube was a tasty little tree. And, uh, you know, we've, kept, we've seen the horses grabbing these blue tubes, pulling them off of the ground and eating the tree. And it's gotten to the point where we had Boy Scouts come up here and uh, they get their winter camping badge every year up here because it gets uh, like in that high 30s um, in January, February time. And anyway, so they came up here and their community service was to make like 500 of these blue tubes. And so they made the 500 blue tubes. We put them in the Quonset hut at the, behind the cabin. And, um, you know, it's open. You can walk in and walk out of it. And one morning we walked up and the blue tubes were spread everywhere. Like a herd of horses came in and thought they hit the freaking jackpot and just started dismantling all the blue tubes that the Boy Scouts just put together. And, uh, you know, it's it's kind of sad and it's kind of funny. The sad thing is, you know, they've eaten thousands of trees that, you know, could have been part of the forest. And, you know, like it's, uh, you know, we kind of put the, the carriage in front of the horse in that step. You know, what we should have done is built the fence and then um, plant. But Hawaii is a fence-in state. Basically, it's not my responsibility to keep your animals off my land. It's your responsibility to keep your animals on your land. And we don't raise cattle and we don't raise horses. But, you know, as we're driving up the highway, you see all the horses and you see all the cows, you know, and you don't see a fence. You know, you got a couple here and there, but they aren't stopping them. And uh, it wasn't until, I mean, we've walked our property now and you've seen the fence that we have now, you know, that stops horses and that stops cows. But, 
you know, had we had that fence up 10 years ago and all the plant things that we did, it'd probably look a lot different and we'd have more of a success story. But, you know, fences cost money and we didn't have money back then. And so, you know, um, we fund this reforestation project by selling sandalwood oil and um, we market as Royal Hawaiian sandalwood oil. Right. That's your main, your dad's main business is sandalwood. Yeah. So what does a sandalwood tree look like? It, uh, it's, you know, first thing it's, it's a semi-parasitic tree, which means that it can't create its own nitrogen. It needs a host. It needs something from a buddy. Um, you know, and so we partner them up with other native Hawaiian trees and we use legumes because legumes have these little like modules on the roots that help them fix more nitrogen or help them fix the nitrogen in the soil. And the sandalwood tree will interlock their roots with these koa trees or with the mamane trees or nayo trees or, you know, a list of all these native Hawaiian trees. And so the sandalwood tree, you know, it's, um, I'm trying to see, you can't see it because it's on the other side of that koa tree right there. Um, these are all koa trees out here? These are all koa trees out here, yeah. Okay. Do the, do koa trees get really big, though, as well? They get huge. Okay, that's what I thought, because the trees that we're looking at right now are maybe 20 feet tall and rather thin, but... Um, They're only five years old. Okay, so when they get big, that's when they can be used for for lumber and, and other Yeah, they, those are mostly used for furniture. Hmm. It's a really, really pretty wood. Um, you know, the Hawaiian koa tree is, it's one of the more prized trees and it's a very expensive tree, but, um, you know, they're, they're still 40 years away from being able to be harvested, you know, but our, our goal here with our property up here is we don't take a tree unless the tree tells us to be taken, if that makes any sense. No, it does not. (laughs) So we only take the dying trees. Because we're trying to bring back the forest. And we don't want to take anything from the forest that is viable to the forest. Um, the sandalwood tree, you know, it needs a host. So it's, um, it's growing alongside of its host. And if its host dies, it needs to find another host. But a lot of times, um, you know, something will hit it or the cow will rub up against it and the tree will slowly start to die. And so we, we look at a tree that if it's canopy is less than 50% of what it should be. That's a tree on the latter part of its life. It's still alive, but it's on the latter part. It's on its way out. It's basically got a foot in the grave. How will a tree begin to die if a cow rubs up against it? So you've got, like, this is in, like, the meanest, craziest layman terms ever because I am no... Thank you. Appreciate it. No tree. What is an arborist? Arborist. Arborist is someone that cuts the trees down, right? Yeah. Ecologist, maybe? I don't know. Botanist, botanist. Um, But so you'd look in, so the center of the tree is the heartwood. And that's the older part of the tree. That's where it kind of puts its, uh, what is that? It doesn't move nutrients something anymore. And then outside of the heartwood is the cambium layer. And that's where all of the nutrients get put up. And that's the, the, the part that's the youngest part of the tree on the, you know, on the, the closest to the bark of the tree and then you have the bark and the bark protects the cambium layer if a cow rubs up on it and rubs that bark off it exposes the cambium layer and then all of a sudden you've got a, a point of contact for funguses and bugs and everything else it's like an open wound exactly 
you know, it's like if we skinned you, how long would you last? Mm, I don't like to have you <laughs> look me in the eyes and say that. <laughs> Watching you skin that pig the other night, <laughs> I feel slightly uncomfortable. And so that's that's what we deem a tree that is telling us it's ready to be harvested. Okay. A sandalwood tree that its canopy is less than 50% or its cambium layer is exposed on a large section of the tree because then the funguses can start to attack it. The sandalwood oil... The reason why it's such a sought-after oil for the essential oil companies, it's an antimicrobial. And so it'll block or um, funguses can't grow on it. And so this cambium layer that's outside the heartwood doesn't have much oil in it. It has some, but not much. And so you'll see where a fungus will start to burrow in or a bug you know, burrowed in and started going. The tree will actually throw oil at it. It'll put like a crescent moon around it. Wow. And the, the fungus will stop. And uh, But if it's a large area, say a big branch breaks off the top of the canopy or the cambium layer is you know exposed in a large section, the tree can't protect itself and it slowly starts to die. But if we take out the tree while the roots are still alive, we get a lot of what's called suckering or copus growing. And it's basically you take the perpetual bud off of the tree and now each one of these roots are trying to find make its own perpetual bud. So if we take a tree, take the root ball out, which is the main perpetual bud in the middle of all those roots, and then you've got all these other roots that are already established to its host, to its buddy that is getting its nitrogen from, and all these little trees will start to pop up. And from one tree, I think the most we got is like 40-something new trees. Um, but you average about 12 or 13 trees. And, uh, you know, Darwin's not going to allow all of those trees to survive you know but if of the 13 trees that are there if three survive you know that's 300 percent return we get on that tree that we've taken out and um you know and that so like the sandalwood tree is kind of a good barometer on how well your reforestation project is going because if the more sandalwood trees you have the more um hosts you need for those trees so the more native hawaiian forest you're bringing back more koa trees, ali'i trees, nayo, mamane, uh, pukiave, um, you know, the list is probably 12 or 13 different Hawaiian trees that were native to this forest that are now coming back tenfold. And without the, the um, you know, the, the pressure from the big ungulates, the cattle and the horses, they really get to come back strong. And, uh, you know, that, you know, with a, a million new trees, I mean, it's, it's pretty astonishing. Changes the whole ecosystem. Completely. And maybe that's why we have more rain. Now we have more trees to catch water. But this has always been deemed a dry land forest. Right. You know, um, it That is crazy, though, that, that a forest can attract rain. Yeah. Isn't that cool? There's a, I met a guy down in uh, New Zealand earlier this year. His name is Sir Michael Fay. Uh, he's this knighted guy. He's unbelievable nice man. And um, he and his business partner, this guy named David Richwhite, um, they're, you know, they're, they're worth quite a bit of money, but they bought this island called Great Mercury Island, um, off of, uh, New Zealand. And it's one of the largest privately owned islands in the world. It's like 5,000 something acres. It's huge. And he said, you know, when he first purchased it, it was just basically a young man pound his chest. Oh yeah, this is my island. You know, and uh, but in his latter part of his um, career, and then you know he's like seventy something now, but he's slowed down quite a bit, and he's really just started to enjoy the island. And uh, 
you know, New Zealand is one of those places that you still can get away with stuff like this, but they dropped millions of pounds or millions of um, tablets of rat poison. Like just flew with helicopters and just dropped it all over because the rats and cats and mice and rodents were just such a huge impact on the native birds and the forest that it just was getting, you know, it was just too much. And so they did that. They waited three or four months, did it again. How, how specifically do cats and rats impact a forest? Well, the birds is the, the biggest They kill thing. the birds. Well, the birds and, you know, they're bringing in diseases and, you know, whether it's fleas and ticks and rats or whatever. I mean, fleas and ticks or some sort of parasite. Who knows what they're bringing in? Um, you know, but the biggest thing is with birds, especially with bird life. And trees need birds, you know, to help spread their seed. You know, they need a bird to eat it and shed it out a mile away. You know, um, I have a buddy named Rory who worked for an organization called Island Conservation for mm -hmm. a long time. And his job was to get dropped off on these um, islands, like way out in the middle of nowhere, mm -hmm. northwestern Hawaiian islands. Um, I think he did a, an eradication on, on Catalina at one point and uh yeah they they go out there for weeks and they use various tactics to eradicate everything from cats rats goats pigs all of mm -hmm. these animals that that have tremendous impact on the islands yeah. and and what he's seen you know in the five six years is the amount of birds that have come back are crazy you know the kingfishers that you know nest on the side of the banks now the rats aren't eating their eggs and they're everywhere. There's all these shoreline birds that nest right on the ground. I mean, dumbass that just, you know, that the high tide, sometimes they get lost their eggs. But anyway, they nest right on the ground and now the cats and birds aren't eating. I mean, cats and rats aren't eating those, you know, and you've got these parrots and you've got the bird life is just amazing. And, um, you know, but he told me about a book. I, God, I want to say it was called like, the the hidden language of trees or something the like secret that. life of trees there you go yeah. the secret life of trees. i've heard that that's a fantastic book i haven't read it yet i haven't read it yet and i told him i was going to read it and i just you know just being dumb and i haven't read it but he said that it is so worth the time to read it. and it's pretty cool because he's like the trees are talking to each other yeah through the mycelium right yeah and basically you know one side of the forest something has happened and on the other side of the forest they're reacting have you ever heard of um, a guy named Paul Stamets? Uh, he's known as the mushroom guy. There's, no. there's like some people call psychedelic mushrooms Stamets because they're like the because nickname. Yeah, like, like imagine if you became that gangster, like, the, like a psychedelic <laughs> was just called a Justin Lee. Mm. <laughs> oh, you don't want to have that Justin Lee, man. It's too powerful for you. <laughs> it'll you can't be a, handle it'll that. It'll be a three-day trip. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You think you can handle? You can't handle Justin Lee. <laughs> it's like a little pressed pill with like Justin's like smiley face on it. Um, My pickup lines are gone after that shit. But uh, anyway, the uh, one thing that he was talking about is that there is um, a, a tree system in Africa that communicates, just like you said. And <clears throat> one tree will sense a giraffe eating the leaves. 
and it will send out a warning message to the other trees to produce a chemical that makes it um, taste bad to giraffes. Really? And the giraffe, though, knows this. So the giraffe will try and move just outside of the communication uh, area of the trees really? to keep eating it. So, like, the whole forest is, and all the animals are in on the joke, <laughs> except the humans are just figuring it out. So, what you're saying is that they're way better at telephone than we are. Exactly. I mean, you put a circle of 10 people, and by the time it gets to the other, you know, we'd be like, there's elephants eating us. And the first would be like, no, I said giraffes. Send out the shitty taste for giraffes, <laughs> not for 11. <laughs> elephants, you idiot. Giraffes. It's a great example of uh, intelligence and, and how narrow of a scope we see intelligence. Mm-hmm. You know, like we see it as someone who speaks well or someone who gets an A plus. But when you start having conversations like this and just recognizing the vastness and complete interconnectedness of life, mm-hmm. um, well, and that's it, it, yeah, you, it, all, I just, I, I guess the point is like you just need to exercise a little bit of humility at that point. Well, even with humans, you know, it's the same way. It's you know, like. I've gotten friends like Wayne. You know, we just had him on the podcast Wayne yesterday. Cipriano. Big the game legend. Wayne. Big game. The man big who, hammer Wayne Cipriano. Man who bow hunted 296 pigs. In one year. Yeah. It was, it was between pigs, dogs, rifle, bow. It was just a combination. But 296 pigs. That's wild. That's, I mean, it, it still <laughs> baffles me. <laughs> like I told him yesterday, I was all like, or the other day, I was like, was it 196 or 296? He's like, 296. I was like, fuck. But anyway, so you look at that guy, you know, and if you had a conversation with him, you know, I love the guy, but there's a lot of people in this world that would deem him uneducated. You know, you know, he's very successful. He's got a beautiful house, a beautiful wife. His son is doing super well, you know, but you would think he's not that educated. He doesn't carry himself correctly or he doesn't fit the smart. He wasn't a straight A student in high school. But motherfucker, if you were stuck in the forest or on an island, I would want that motherfucker sitting next to me, you <laughs> <Yeah>. know, because <laughs> while the rest of the people are freaking out. But I have more Instagram followers. Exactly. You know but, if I, <laughs> but if I was stuck, you know, we would be sitting there, you know, underneath, you know, a house that he tacked together and we'd have meals for the next five meals and we'd just be chilling. Yeah. You know, but, you know, like you said, like, you know, our spectrum, our, our vision on what is intelligent is someone that gets straight A's that went to Harvard. You know, and the funny this is this is Wayne in a nutshell, two and true. When we were in like high school, the in Honoka, which is like, you know, a blink of a town on the map. And we're you're driving, I mean not driving, but we're sitting in the This is where you both grew up. Yeah. We're sitting at the grocery store. We just bought our airheads, I think, or whatever, and we we're standing outside and this really, really nice Jaguar comes in. And parks, and I'm like, "Oh, how's that car?" He's like, "Oh, it's nice." I was like, "Bro, that car is like, you know, seventy, eighty grand car." He's all like, "That's cool. I kind of pull one pig in that, <laughs> you know." And it's like, "Yeah, it's fuck, true. That's true." You know, like, you know what what society deems as successful, you know, as having the nice car, having the big house, you know. Is, isn't all the same, you know, as in the countryside where your nice car is a lifted Tacoma, 
Oh, you got a lifted Tacoma? You fucking made That's it. That's your Ferrari. Yeah. Oh, that fucker get one Toyota. Like, there's people, I mean, there's Yoda clubs. And there's, I mean, just like every other Ferrari clubs and whatever. But, you know, on, you know, parts of the Big Island, especially, you know, the Fisher Hunter group, Toyota is the Ferrari. That's the creme de la creme. And if you can get it lifted with sounds... Oh man, <laughs> girls just throw pity panties at you. Just ugh. so, how much would you say your knowledge of these ecosystems has come out of pure curiosity, and how much would you say it's come from a desire to become a better hunter and spear fisherman? Probably fifty-fifty. Yeah, you know, um, because you know it starts off when you're young. It's like you know. You always hear of the different stages of a sportsman here in Hawaii. You know, the stage one is trying to learn and just do everything, you know, and stage two is trying to prove to everybody else that you know what you're doing out there. So you're trying to go out there and shoot the most. What do you mean the stage one? The stage trying, one, trying to do everything. Your infant stage. You're just trying to learn everything. You're trying to do everything yourself. You're going out there. You're just, you're not successful, but you're learning as you're going you know, and you're super stoked with getting a U or, you know, your first RAM, which might be a little RAM, yep. but you're super stoked and you're like, yeah. And then, you know, the stage you graduate from that is you've prolific, you're, you know, you're um, proficient, proficient at shooting, you know, small U's. And now you're trying to shoot, now you're trying to prove to people you can shoot 10 of them or you can shoot, you know, you're just trying to take out as many as you can or, you know, shoot more difficult shots exactly. with a bow, <clears throat> be able to stalk to better, poop. be quieter, all that. Exactly. And so that's, you, know, you get to the provider side of it. And then you get to stage three, which is the trophy. Nothing matters but the trophy. So you walk all day to look for that big trophy. And, um, you know, and then after that, you slowly and then you start to appreciate you know, stage four is the latter part of it. And you start to appreciate it. And that's where you really start to learn about the forest. And you really start to learn about what's going on in the forest. Why this? Why that? I mean, you still are going out there to provide for yourself. But coming home with a trophy isn't necessarily the deemed successful hunt anymore. Going out there and seeing, you know, something or connecting with the forest. Give, me, any, now, give me an example of like, can the, like what you see when you're hiking through the forest that I don't see. Um, you know, like, like today, you know, you walked out in front of me, which is fine. You know, I couldn't care less, but you know, the reason that you're walking faster is because your head is at the ground looking where your next step is going to be, you know, but if you took a half step slower and let your head be a swivel, you're going to see the animal before they see you. And that's in the name of archery hunting. That is the game. You see the animal before they see you. Because once they see you and they know you're there, they're going to run away. But if you see them before they see you, then it gives you the opportunity to put together a game plan and uh, try and get within, um, you know, a shot worthy of uh, the animal. But, you know, so, you know, that um, or when you're walking down the road, like we're walking down the road and it's, you know, I, I love hunting, walking the road because it, it's simpler, it's easier. But you know, when you're hunting with someone that just started hunting, it can kind of be a curse because then, you know, they're, they start walking faster, you know, and a lot of times on our roads, especially these ones, they've got gravel on them. And unless you walk on the edge of the road and the grass next to the road or the, the grass lane in the middle of the road, that gravel, when you step on it is very loud. Yeah. 
or you know you're stepping and you start to come up and it's loose so all of a sudden you slip and you make a lot more noise you know but if you know you took your step and you took a half step up or you looked okay here comes some gravel i'm gonna start walking off the road and you just kind of do that or as you're walking through the forest you know like yesterday when we were walking through the forest and i was like hey something just walked through the grass and you're like how can you tell i was like well you see all the wet grass with all the dew on it there's a path through the middle of it that doesn't have it the only thing that's gonna do that especially in that um, form is by having something walk through that grass um you know but or it's or it's a bird that flies a hundred feet in the eye in the sky and singing the whole way up you know it's or what does that mean that's just them trying to communicate with themselves you know flying up and whether it's the male or the female trying to find and mate i don't i don't yeah. know because i don't i don't even know what bird that bird's name is but you know it's it's just going out there and being one you know it's like, noticing more yeah really like taking it all in and man i just i love that man like i seriously get so psyched to hear you talking about this kind of stuff because that's the aspect of hunting that excite, excites me most because mm-hmm. if i were to just be hiking through the forest i would not be incentivized to notice that much mm-hmm. you know i, I wouldn't have the the motivated the motivator to walk as quietly as i possibly can yeah and like i just think that's such a good example of how it really isn't all about getting an animal Mm -hmm. it's about taking it in and being as quiet as possible and deciphering all of the sounds of the forest and that's the biggest thing too is like you're walking through you know and people will be like i'll be like did you hear that like no and then you hear sheep. I just farted. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you, you hear sheep crying or you hear um, an animal going through the brush or you hear, you know, this or that or, you know, just the slightest movement, you know, that or a different color than the shade of green or the shade of grass that you're looking at. Um, you know, it, it all tells a story. And that's that's the biggest difference between someone that just started hunting and someone that's that's hunted a few years is you know, when you look out this forest or this field, you know, um, the, the inexperienced hunter would be like, I'm going to go to the top of that hill and I'm going to look to see something. So they walk from that hill, from here to that hill with their head down, trying to get to that hill. They're very goal oriented as I need to get to B. I'm going to get to B as fast as I can. I'm going to get there and I'm going to glass where the experienced hunter is like, okay, so that's where I want to go but I'm going to zigzag my way, my quietest way there. And when I get there, I'm going to slowly approach it because it's a hill or this or that. Or you're looking at it and you're like, okay, if I walk through the middle of that and I see something, I'm screwed because I'm in the middle of the field and I'm in completely open. But if I walk this way and I go through these trees and I go through that tree and to those trees and you just kind of, you know, dot your I's and cross your T's on your way to your, your end point where you want to end up, you know, you're a lot more successful because, I mean, it may have taken half an hour longer to get there. But if you had seen something between the two, you would have a higher percentage of actually being able to get on the animal. Because, I mean, you're if you're in the middle of this field right here off to our left, the nearest brush or shrub is 100 yards away. That's a long way to walk standing up all by yourself or if you see something and you have to get to your hands and knees and crawl now you're moving way slower than you did had you taken 
the route less traveled through the trees and um, moved slow. Yeah. I had a, a guy named Ben Horton on my podcast the other night with his brother, Jesse. He's a, Ben's a Nat Geo photographer, and um, they do a lot of shark diving. And he was saying one of the issues that people have around sharks is they're only looking at the shark's movement. They're not turning a mirror back on themselves and asking what do I look like right now? Mm-hmm. Do I look like a flapping underwater monkey or do I look like I'm calm, cool and collected and disinterested? And I think that that's another aspect that I'm trying to learn about hunting as well is not just looking outwards, but turning around and be like, Hmm, how, how loud am I right now? What do I look like to an animal? And mm-hmm. I think that's, probably sounds pretty pedestrian to you because that's just kind of inherent but it's a language that i i feel like i'm just kind of just starting to learn Mm -hmm. well and what happens too a lot of times which i you know i don't understand why either this but you know if you're walking through an area you know and you've looked a place over and over and all of a sudden you stop and a lot of times you and the animal make eye contact at the exact same time and why that is I don't know. And I don't know if it's because you're just slowly moving and all of a sudden you stop abruptly, you know, and that's them turning their head to look at you. Um, you know, why or why not? I don't know. But that's that's just, you know, part of the game of hunting is just trying to, um, you know, be part of the forest as much as possible. That's why we wear camouflage and that's why we try and move slowly and, you know, and, and use as much cover as you can. Yeah. Um Last few days, you've been doing uh, ram calls. <laughs> Will you do one? <laughs> do you also do uh, pig calls when you're on a pig hunt as well? I have. What's the reason for that? Because will a pig call back? And this, it's because it's amazing to see, like when you're out on a hunt and you call a ram, and then they'll call back. Mm. Does it work the same way with pigs? They don't necessarily call back, but if you're, you know, they're a herd animal, right? And so if one of their partners is, you know, in distress in any way, shape, or form, they'll usually come back. I'm trying to see if I can find this video. Um, So if I scream like a distressed animal, um, you know, they'll they'll come running back going, hey, what's happened to Brada? I got to find it. But you gotta squeal like a like a pig. Do like your a pig squeal. Pig. <laughs> you just caused so many car crashes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's a pig in the back of my car. <laughs> but you know that's but that's the name of the game. Is trying to you know be so much a part of the forest and listen to them and know what their calls sound like. Like with deer, they've got a couple of different warning calls. They've got like a warning like, hey, there's something over here. So it's like, Arr! hey, I, I think there's something over here. And if you watch the herd, you you know, and one, you know, kind of gets a sense that something's around there. Like, the other deer don't even move. You know, and all of a sudden, it'll be like, Arr! and it'll be like, all the other deer, I don't, you know, I can't make that noise. And, uh, but you can hear it, you know, and that noise is like, don't freaking move because it's game time, you know, because they know you're there. 
and then the other deer now you if at that that bark or that warning call the other deer will start to you know look in your direction or end up look around and uh and then there's a ha or just a high pitch like basically it sounds like they're screaming and the whole herd runs away so it's like hey i think there's something over here oh it i see something Holy shit! It's something. Run away. You know, <laughs> with with all of your your intricate understanding of animal noises, I'm surprised you're not fluent in Laotian yet. Only in time. Only in time, in time. my friend. <laughs> well, Laotian is a different type of animal. Like, <laughs> Do tell. <laughs> like so, one day, I mean, you know, my wife is Lao, hundred percent Lao, and uh, so you know, and her parents don't speak English quite well enough to really truly communicate you know and the funny the, the funny the sad thing is you know you get together with the family and you know they're talking in Lao and like the mom will say something and everybody will start laughing you know so you know inherently the mom is a funny lady and like or she has these quirky things and I want to know what she says but I have no idea and then she doesn't have the confidence to kind of talk English to me other than come eat <laughs> yeah. tastes good she makes amazing food yeah <laughs> El poop today Oh, okay. That's your daughter. Yeah, Elle, my daughter. She pooped today. But, you know, she doesn't... Um, but last night, yesterday, I came home and I was like, did Elle make doo-doo? I don't understand. <laughs> Elle make doo-doo. Poop. Did Elle make poop? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Big one. Big, big one today. You know, but it's, you know, it's that lack. And so, you know, in trying to figure out how to speak Lao, one day, I, you know, we were driving in the car and uh, I asked my wife, I was like, yeah, turn off the radio, loud lesson, right now, let's go, basics. She's like, well, let's see what you remember. She, I was all like, she's all like, I was like, what do you mean? She's like, what's some of the foods that you remember? And I'll break down what those foods are. And I was all like, um, what's that? You oh, show me later. Is, uh, uh, what is that? Uh, Sunba. Sunba. Okay. Which is basically pickled fish. And because uh, there's Sunmu, which is pickled pig. But Sunba is pickled fish. And so I was like, I know. She's like, well, you know Sunmu, right? I was like, yeah, that's the f- that's the um, the pig, the pork. She's like, okay, what is the Sun fish? What's the word for fish? And I was all like, Sunba? She's all like, close. I was like, she said, you said pickled ante. I was like, wait. I was like, okay. So, Sunba? She's like, no, you just said pickled crazy. I was like, wait, 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 wait one second. Say crazy anti fish. She's like, ba, ba, ba. And I'm like, no, that that doesn't make any sense. She's all like, yes. It's all such so tonal, you know? It's- yeah. It's funny that that's confusing to you, though, but <laughs> the, me as well. But you just said, wait. Right, so let's say that a Laotian person is trying to learn the word "wait." So they're like, yeah. "Okay, so wait means to not move, or wait means a, a measurement, a unit yeah. of measurement." Like, hmm, that's kind of strange. Like, we have plenty of, diff- of yeah. double meanings for like there. Words. There, yeah. Um, I mean, T H E I R. Yeah, over there. It's T Y R E. T Y R E. I mean, it's their pig. Exactly. Or, or they are yeah. pigs. Yeah. What did they think of? Uh, what did they th- did the parents think of you as a hunter when you first met them? They were stoked. They were beyond world. So like I, the first time I went to go meet Sonali, uh in Utah because I met her when she was out here on a trip 
and uh, she went back home to Utah. And, uh, you know, a couple months went by and I went up there to go meet her. And um, I asked her, I was like, hey, you guys want anything from Hawaii? Usually it's, oh, can we get some macadamia nuts? Can we get some chocolates? Can we get some coffee? And um, she's all like, I'll, I'll ask my dad. And I was like, okay. And so, like, the next day she calls us. She's like, so what does your guy's dad want? She's like, I don't know how to say this. It's not like, what? She's like, you guys have goats, yeah? You hunt? I was like, yeah. She's all like, they want goat meat. I was like, oh, done. No, they don't just want goat meat. I was like, okay. They want goat tongue. I was like, okay. Goat knees. <laughs> And goat bile. And if you have space, some meat. But that's what they want. So explain what bile is for people who don't know. So bile is like when you throw up and there's nothing in your stomach anymore. <laughs> that really bitter yellow grossness. That is bile. And that bile is created in your gallbladder, which is a little, basically looks like a little piss bag on the side of your liver. And it's super, super bitter. It's green in color. It's just gnarly. And it's the end. It's used to cook with. They 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 don't cook with it because then if you cook with it, you're gonna lose the flavor. So they just you wanna, add it. Wouldn't want to lose the no, flavor. So add it to sauces. But anyway, so I came. You know, I went up there and I brought a couple of tongues, a couple of knees, and some goat bile, and he was pumped, super super pumped. And I was like, oh, I am in yeah. like Flynn. Suddenly. You can do no wrong, no more, as long as you're with me. But so when they, then when they came, you know, they moved down here. <laughs> and the first time they came and visited me in Hawaii, they're like, can we go get mountain goat? Which is just the, the regular wild goats that we have over here. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. He says, I was like, how much you want? He's like, two. I was like, gotcha. Perfect. Anytime I can go shoot more goats, I'm stoked. He's like, but bring back whole. I was like, all guts inside. I'm like. I live like an hour away. If I go shoot a goat and I throw it in the back of my truck, it's going to get bloated like to the max. Why do they get bloated? All the gases and everything like that in their body starts to, you know, in the stomach and everything like that starts to expand. And so it's just like an, like, have you seen those, that sperm whale that like washed up on the sea and like they explode every yeah. now and then. Yeah, That's yeah, because yeah. Because all the gases inside oh. is bloated and then all of a sudden the container that's controlling all this gas. I had never considered. Can't hold it anymore. Why a sperm whale would explode. <laughs> it's all the gases. I in was, there. I didn't even know that that was a thing. Like I always thought that that was fiction. No, it's like, like your, your kombucha. Yeah. Right? It's like shaking up your kombucha and having it explode on you while you're on the freeway. It's <laughs> Not a good closest day. I've ever come to death. <laughs> <laughs> Got my trilogy kombucha. <laughs> Just wasn't thinking about it. Listened to a podcast or something. Shook it up a little bit. Freaking! <laughs> it's the exact same. Oncoming thing. traffic. Death by kombucha. Death by kombucha. Thought I was just getting a healthy That's gut <laughs> biome, but really. <laughs> See what you're trying to do? Being yep. living in the Amazon. No. Yep. But you know. So anyway. They come back and I was like, okay. So I go shoot two goats and I bring them back. And he and his buddy are freaking on cloud nine bazillion at this time, you know, and they are super happy. Like they came out with two of their best friends um, to Hawaii to come visit us for the first time. And uh, they came up, they hung them in the back of like you've seen where Dennis lives, right? My dog in that back garage area. They hung the two goats right there and cleaned it. 
and I mean, they put plastic on the ground. It was like freaking Dexter. Totally put plastic <laughs> on the ground, gutted these animals. When the guts came out, they started cleaning everything. I mean, this this sounds gnarly, but that's how everybody lived back in the day. Sure, you know, and th- that was the cool thing was seeing them, you know, smile and be stoked with you know with one another. It was like they were back in their home, you know, and it was sitting around basically talking over, you know, preparing a meal. You know, so what did so they wanted to clean the animal for the experience? No, they wanted the guts. They mm. eat it. Oh, because yeah, because they eat the the bile and that's just the start uh, of it. <laughs> they eat. So continue. So you know, like it's you realize how much you waste when I go hunting and I don't take the guts and I don't take you know the ear and I don't take the tongue. I you know. um I take a lot of the meat because that's what I eat is I meet the meat. Nothing goes to waste out here. A pig's going to eat it. You know, something's going to eat it. So nothing goes to waste. But, you know, for me, I just eat the meat. And um, anyway, so they came and they eat the the liver, of course. A lot of cultures eat the liver. The heart. Um, the gallbladder is a huge one. They, the kidneys. And then they make a soup with the intestine. But they got to take the intestine that is relatively close to the stomach and far away from the asshole. And so because, you know, I don't know if you know how your digestive system, or I'm sure you do, is you're eating, right? And it first starts into your um, intestinal tract, and it's more of like a soup, right? It's got all liquidy and soup, and as it goes through, your intestines are sucking up the juices and basically the nutrition out of your food. And by the time it gets to the, the end... If you're not having diarrhea, it's hard because all of the the liquid and fluid is is done and the waste is thrown out the bottom. So the the goats, because it's all grass, it's like this green, soupy, smelly thing. And so they take the intestine and they tie a knot in it, the section that's close to the stomach. And they slowly go foot by foot down until they get to a point where it's starting to near starting to near where there's shit and they cut it there and then he tastes it he puts his pinky in it and goes and goes up five or six inches cuts it again tastes it Mm, goes up another five or six inches cuts it very good very good ties it in a knot now he's got five or six feet of intestine with this green soupy stuff inside of it make soup good very good this makes soup and he puts that on the side and then he takes the liver and he takes the kidney and he takes all of the the blood clots and stuff like that from the arrow he takes all that blood and he saves it and he then they go inside the house and then they take the stomach they empty the contents of the stomach which is the green. they don't eat that <laughs> but they wash the stomach and, um, you know, they just wash it with clean water and they scrub it and they wash it and they scrub it and wash it. And, um, then they take the bile, they cut up the liver and the kidneys raw. They put strips of the stomach that's raw and then they feed it. And then with the blood, they put the little bit of the bile in the blood. They put different cilantro and spices and whatever else they put in the blood. And then I came home after they were done with all of this and they're like, come and all the men are sitting at the table and this is for the men and so i sat down they're like you try i was like 
you gotta try, right? You can't be that freaking white boy that is like, no, I'm too good for this. It's like that scene in the in the the wedding singer when the old woman comes up to him with, the, "Have a taste of my meatball." <laughs> we eat it in front of me. That's my favorite part. <laughs> like this slimy, wretched oh. meatball. Oh, I'll, I'll go with the right one then. Okay, <laughs> sure. Let's go with this one, but. You know, and, you know, they're all sitting, talking loud and having a good time and drinking the blood and stuff like that. And they, they sit down and they're like, oh, here. And they cut one of the kidneys in half, like wrap it in the stomach, dip it in the blood bile concoction and eat it. And so he gives me that and he throws it and I eat it. And I was like, and it's chewy like the most strong iron flavor you've ever had in your life. Plus the smell of what, like, you know, the smell of goat cheese. Yeah. It's got that goat smell to it. Just imagine that times a thousand and then make that into a flavor. (laughs) So then you're chewing that and it's just like, Oh my God. And I'm like, and they're like, yeah, very good. And I'm like, "Mm, yeah. And, um, the, the youngest guy, that is there. He's all like, just swallow, man. It doesn't get better. <laughs> I swallow and I'm like, oh, okay, I'm good. No, I'm good. He's all like, no, make strong in bed. I'm like, okay, future father-in-law. <laughs> <laughs> just swallow. It doesn't get better. You know, but it's like. Words to live by. There you go. <laughs> but uh, it's, it's, it was just really cool to see. You know, someone get that excited. Totally. And look, I have an initial reaction, which is, ooh. But then you could turn that argument upside down and just look at a hot dog. Yeah, I had a like, corn dog this morning. What? Dude, yeah. <laughs> we stopped at a gas station. Justin's like, oh, I need to get something to eat. I'm like, mm, okay, well, what you getting, man? I'm going to get a corn dog. It's like 4.30 a.m. We're about to go on a ram hunt. <laughs> Meanwhile, like he keeps harping on about how he needs to get in the best shape of his life for spearfishing world championships. But you look at a, at a corn dog, okay? Exactly. <laughs> Inside that, that hot dog is probably 10 different animals. Like, oh. It's definitely not just one single animal that, no. that you're eating, right? Like... The the Laotian meal, it's a lot of different parts from an animal, animal yeah. but a hot dog's like from processed it, it could be, and yeah, it could preservatives be, and, yeah, and an animal like one that was raised in Montana and another in Canada and another in southern Brazil. And like it's it all just gets mixed together. That's <laughs> a crazy thing to think about is that most of the, the meat that you're eating, like hamburgers and hot dogs, it's not just one animal. No. Many of them. So, yeah, I've, and I would totally go for it. You know, like life, as long as you're not going to get sick, like drink it in, taste it. I had a, an opportunity to eat, uh, an animal called a suri once. Um, I was in Peru in the Manu jungle going on a week long, um, river trip, uh, Mm -hmm. with my brother and my dad and super cool experience. Every night we would pull over to the side of the river and we would camp out. We'd go on these hikes. We'd see these massive spiders. We got to see a fight between a, um, a number of giant otters and a caiman. 
I came and tried to come up and swoop one of the giant otters. And the giant otters, they're like six foot long otters. That's freaking crazy. Yeah, and uh, and they fended off the caiman. <laughs> but on uh, on one of the last days, we stopped in and uh, we met with this tribe that lives in the Manu jungle. And one of the guys there um, offered us suri. And my brother and I were like, I don't know what it is, but I got a sense of adventure and I <laughs> like it. So he lifts up this big log and underneath the log are these worms, mm. these, these grubs, these white grubs that are maybe six inches long and thick and you need, and then they have these heads that you need to crunch first because they can bite you. And he pulls out this wriggling little worm from under the log and he holds it up to me. He's like, eat, eat, it's suri. I'm like, okay. And my big brother Toby's right there. And I'm like, <laughs> and he holds that one up to Toby. We're like, all right, cheers. And we just threw it back and he crunched the head and sucked it down. And it tasted kind of like warm butter. But we got a story to tell from it, right? Warm butter. Yeah. That actually doesn't sound that bad. It wasn't that bad, right? It's just the idea of what we deem to be mm-hmm. gross. And that's, you know, that's, but it's around the world. I mean, it's just like, you know, I'm sure my father-in-law's all like, wait, you're going to eat shoyu vinegar and tangerines? It's like, I love shoyu vinegar and tangerines. Do you know what shoyu vinegar and tangerines? We call it bug juice out here. It's just shoyu vinegar, and then you got, that's basically the base of it. And then people put black pepper in it or whatnot. And then we just put any kind of fruit in it. And it's just what you grew up on, whether it be guavas or tangerines or apples. And But it's it's kind of gnarly. <laughs> it's vinegar and soy sauce. <laughs> What's the grossest thing you've ever eaten? <sighs> A flying bat in Fiji. That has to be, oh. And it probably, you know, wasn't that bad if it was cooked properly. But this was just gnarly. I mean, I was down in Fiji. Spearfishing? Yeah, I went on a spearfishing trip with a... I went with two buddies of mine, and we went down there as a boys' trip because one of my buddies had just going through this divorce with this chick. And so we're like, oh, we need a boys' trip. Let's go. And so we decided we were going to go to Fiji. And we weren't just going to go to Fiji for a week. We went to Fiji for four weeks. We're like, we're going to do this right. And we're going to go travel around. We're going to go to a bunch of different islands. We're going to do a lot of spearfishing. We're just going to have a good time. And uh, so we planned this like six months, you know, we finally, that's like was the nearest that we could all get together and do this. And uh, in that six months, one of the guys, uh, we're about to leave like two weeks. He's like, "Um, do you guys mind if my girlfriend comes? I'm like, I was thinking planning on like proposing to her. I'm like, sure, whatever. Yeah. I was all like, and then my buddy Josh, the guy that just got out of his relationship was all like, bro. We're going to go hunt. We're going to go, not hunt, but we're going to go dive. And, uh, you know, if he, if she distracts in any way, screw it. We just leave him. I'm like, okay. Whatever. So we get down there. We get to the first island. And, you know, the two of them, you know, Ryan and Marlo, you know, freaking, they're awesome people. And they've, they've been married now. And they got two kids live in San Diego. But anyway, they get down there and Marlo's super awesome, you know, and we go diving and stuff like that. And, Marlo came with us a couple times, but 
um, you know, for the first week, <clears throat> it was kind of just me and Josh and Ryan would come with us for half day trips and stuff. And um, but one morning we woke up to this lady out in the field doing like yoga classes and like aerobic classes with like coconuts and, you know, cause it's like this eco tour thing anyway. So they're out there and they're going one and two and one and two. And she's got this thick English accent or British accent, one of the two. And, uh, you know, he turns over and he's all like, that girl's got a voice that would make a drowning man ask for water. And I was like, oh, that was harsh. <laughs> you know, and I was like, wow, that's pretty crazy. And so, you know, um, we just shove it off. And then at the end of the week, Ryan's like ready to come back and his girlfriend goes home after they propose and everything like that. And so now it's the three of us. And all of a sudden one night, like, where'd Josh go? Josh is in the Buddha with that aerobics instructor that had the super irritating voice. And, you know, and he like disappears for like a week on end. And now we have this companion with us that doesn't dive, that gets sick on the boat that is out there. And she's a trooper. And, you know, and it's just like, what happened to our boys trip boys? And ends up, he marries this girl, has a daughter with her and moved to England. Like <laughs> it's, it's crazy. Like Fiji was great to them. You know, I had my boy strip. I had a fun time. But Get anyway, back to your bad story. Sorry. Yeah. Tangent on tangents. But yeah, so, you know, in me being, you know, one of the guys that didn't have a girl with them, I made friends with eight little kids on the island. Like, they were like between six and ten years old, probably. And they call them the Huyo Hei Club, which is the, just the octopus club. And uh, because we freaking ran around the island throwing rocks at fish and catching snakes and this and that and we'd see these f bats flying over and you know the word that they used for it was bae and they're like bae bae and come to find out they eat these bats and they're known as like a delicacy and so i told them i was like if you guys ever catch a bae i want to eat and they're like okay and so one morning before we went diving the whole group of them came into my bude and was yelling hey hey Hey, which is their name for me because I have an octopus tattoo on my shoulder. I'm like, hey, hey, hey. And I get up and I was like, yeah. They're like, bye. I was like, what? Bye. I was like, you guys caught a bat? Yeah. I was like, oh, sweet. So I go over there and they have this bat in the bottom of this bucket that is like showing his teeth pissed. Just like, ah. I was like, oh. I was all like, we eat. I was all like, I got to go diving right now. I was like, when I come back, we'll eat it. They're like, okay, save it for me. They're like, okay. And so we go diving, you know, for like 10 hours we're out in the ocean. And we come back. And the first thing that they say is, come eat bae. And I was like, okay, let me go put away my gear and I'll come down to your little village. And so I walk to their side of the, 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 side of the island that he was there living on. And this bat is at the bottom of this bucket still. And I'm like, are we going to cook it? They're like, oh, no, cooked already. And I was like, the thing looked the exact same as it did when I left in the morning. I mean, no different just not moving and i'm like okay they're like no eat i was like okay so i sit there i was all like we're gonna clean it no 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 is the bat is clean they only eat fruit i'm like okay and so this animal has got its hide on it and it's got i mean everything on it like they haven't touched it they just boiled it so you could imagine it being boiled in its own juices for how long they don't have refrigeration so it's not like they 
put it in a cooler or in a refrigerator. So God only knows how long it was sitting on the bottom of this bucket after it was boiled. And so we start eating it. And they peel off the skin. They're like, you want the skin? And I'm like, no, I'm okay with the skin. And, you know, at this time, I'm like, I don't want to eat this. I want to go away. I want to run away. But, you know, they caught it and can't be that guy. So I take a bite of its, basically, its breast meat. And it doesn't taste bad. <clears throat> like it had some flavor, you know, it would have been good. But there's nothing on it. And I'm just like, okay. And then they start eating the guts. They take this, the guts out and they start just biting into it. And they're like, here. So I bite into it. And I'm like, oh, my God. You know, but they're like, it just it eats fruit. So it, there's nothing there's nothing bad about it. It's it's all fresh. And I'm like, okay. So I just keep eating. And then they start grabbing, eating the wings of the the bat, the skin. They start eating, I mean, everything. And it's like we're sitting in a circle. And I'm like the guest of honor. And this thing is getting passed around <laughs> like a joint in a, in a circle of friends. And you're just like... Are you kidding me? And then finally, you know, there's parts of it that I just was like, no, this is the line. I'm not going to have the wing. You know, and. Oh, it's the, like that scene from Indiana Jones where exactly. they're passing around the brain. Exactly. Or they cut the snake open and the snake. Yeah. Oh, so gnarly. But, you know, and so, but you see the, the joy that this bat, eating this bat is doing for the rest of the kids. And one of the kids' dad is there and, you know, and I get the last bite. And which is like the last bite is biting the base of the neck of the bat and sucking. And basically you're cracking the spine and sucking out the spinal juices. And I was like, oh my gosh. And I was like, and we're done. I was like, we good? I was like, yeah, I got to go back to camp. And as I'm walking back to my side of the island, like, you know, when you get like a really bad oily food and it's like on your lips and it's like, you know, when your armpits smell and you can't stop smelling it. I just couldn't stop licking my lips and it was so freaking gross. And I just was like, oh, like every time I was walking, like every two steps, I'd lick my lips and I'd go, oh. <laughs> uh. and I was just like, oh my God. Oh, stop. <laughs> no more. No more. I brushed my teeth for like oh a solid God, 10 I'm minutes. Shaking in the fetal position on the other side of the table right now. <laughs> I brushed my teeth for like 10 minutes, ate like 10 Oreos. And for the rest of the day, it was just gnarly. Justin Lee, you're a horrible, horrible human. I asked. I asked. Let's see if we can stomp this landing here. What are your goals moving forward in spearfishing and hunting? <laughs> With spearfishing? Let's end it on an upward note. <laughs> like, I would love to do well at this World Championships in um, coming up this year in Portugal. Um, you know, the, the last world championships in Greece kind of lit a fire underneath me. Um, you know, I did well, but I didn't do, you know, like my older brother said when before, like the morning before I went on the competition, he's like, go win that fucking thing. He said, the only people that are going to be surprised when you win is the rest of the world. He said, me and you, we're not going to be surprised because that's what we are known to do. You know, you're a fucking champion. Get out there and show the world that you're a champion. And, um, you know, and I did fairly well. I didn't do as well, you know, as my brother and I had hoped. You know, I got, uh, I think I finished ninth. I was fifth after the first day, which is top 10. It's pretty respectable. I mean, we were spearing fish down at 200 feet deep. And 
But Portugal is going to be a complete different. Right. It's going to be shallower. It's going to be more shooting. It's going to be a lot more fish. It's going to be a little different skill yeah. set. It should also be noted that I was talking to Mark Healy about your result last year, and, and he said, you know, to put it into context, the advantage that European teams have over someone like Justin is they have trainers, they have scouts, they have more funding, they show up to spots a couple weeks earlier than the American crews do. So for you to do as well as you did is really impressive. That's a cool coming guy from a guy like Mark, which is pretty accomplished in the ocean. But it's it's that's the fact that is, you know, you show up and the European teams that are known for being amazing, the Spaniards, the Greece, the, the guys from Cyprus, um, Croatia, um, Portugal, you know, are, you know, they have the fundings where they're making large amounts of money as a professional spear fisherman. Um, you know, their countries are backing them. You know, they go a year prior to the event to dive the area, the zone, to get familiar with it during the same time. If, you know, if it's going to be held September 6th, you know, 2019, they go and check out what the moon phase is going to be there and go with the same moon phase as this year, you know, and to make sure that they're there to figure out kind of what the weather is like, what the fish are like, what the tides are going to be, to kind of get themselves an idea. And then, yeah, they show up with, you know, 20 people on you know five boats scouting and telling their top three guys you know it's like lebron like putting in basketball terms it's like or putting in surfing terms it's like kelly slater mick fanning and medina show up you know and john john shows up you know they show up with this crew of 20 people and john john kelly medina guys they're sitting inside their house resting you know and guys come in you know that are equally great just don't have yeah but they don't have the you know someone traveling with them to carry all of their boards they're not staying in as nice of accommodations they don't have trainers and coaches yeah it definitely but allows you to have a, a significant advantage so these top guys come back and you know they've got five guys scouting for them come back and say okay at this gps mark there's a rock here i saw five fish on it you got to approach it from this side that's that's that i've you know i went and found these spots you know while they're resting while the rest of the world is out there kicking you know like the americans we don't have nearly as much funding as the rest of the world does you know we get there hopefully a week or two weeks prior to the event you try and learn the area get acclimated to the area as much as you can and you know try and do as well as you can but this here in portugal you know i'm kind of all in I'm going like four weeks before the competition starts um, and just trying to get there early enough. um, You know, (laughs) my wife is a very understanding woman. Try to get there early enough to try and really figure out, you know, get a game plan, get acclimated to diving in that area. And, um, you know, and hopefully uh, we'll bring some light onto American spearfishing and uh, get fundings later. Are you guys doing a crowdfunding campaign to get over there right now? We do. How can people help get the American spearfishing team over there if they want to support you? There's the, the crowdfunding is on my Instagram at, at Big Isle Boy 24, B-I-G-I-S-L-E-B-O-Y 24. Um, there's a crowdfund, or you can go on Facebook to the USA Spearfishing, um, uh, what is that, Facebook account. There's a, a there that you can buy T-shirts. Um, if you go to our um, US team, USA Spearfishing website, 
uh, you can purchase t-shirts, read our bios and everything like cool. that and trying to get money for that. So how will Portugal be different than Greece? Greece was deep diving. Lots and lots of deep diving. How um, deep were you going in Greece? The deepest fish I speared was 196 feet. Fuck. The, I missed the spot and dropped down to 208 feet. And I was like, oh, turned around and went back up to the surface. But, you know, the shallowest fish I shot, I think, was 155, um, where Portugal would be in the shoreline out to 70 or 80 feet. And, um, you know, so it's going to be a little different. It's going to be a lot more hunting. It's going to be a lot like diving in Hawaii, hopefully. And, uh, you know, hopefully we'll get results that, you know, we'll, we'll put some. And what kind of fish are you going for? The list is huge, actually. There's like a hundred different fish on the list that you can shoot. Um, whether from little little damselfish, sargos, the, the minimum is 500 grams, so like a pound, um, up to these big corvinas, um, uh, these like white sea bass looking fish, eels, mori eels. Um, there's just a lot of fish. Snappers, um, and is it, and it's all measured on size, or is it measured on quantity as well? Uh, it's both. So it's kind of so. It, you're allowed to spear. So you, what they want you to do is have as diverse stringer as possible. They don't want you to come in with 20 redfish. I mean, it's, it's great if you come in with 20 redfish, but, um, or I guess they, they max you out at 10 per fish. So you only can come in with 10 redfish. So but if you come in with 10 redfish and 10 bluefish, and I come in with two redfish, a greenfish, a yellowfish, a purplefish, you know, I come in with probably three quarters of your catch, but a variety of fish, I'm going to beat you in points because it shows that my diversity and my skill set helps me catch a variety of fish other than just one fish. Um, you know, so you get points for the fish, you get points for the weight of the fish, and then you get a bonus point for every new fish you shoot. You know, so you get extra bonus for your first red fish, your first blue fish, your first green fish. But if you know you shoot three green fish, you're only going to get one bonus for the green fish. And then... Um, if, you know, there's different categories, there's category one, category two, category three. If you shoot, if you fill up your allotted amount from category one, you get a bonus as well. Okay. And do they just set you out and you go for a certain amount of time and everyone is diving their own spot? I would imagine that there's would be a lot of jockeying because there are areas where there are more fish. It's, it's crazy. It's a shotgun start. So you have 25 boats or 75 boats because you have 25 countries sending their top three divers and each diver will have a boat. And so each diver has their boat. They're all starting in one area. And then the guy goes, ready, set, go. Boom, and 75 boats run in every direction to their favorite zone. And then you get five hours before you have to be out of the water. And um, what is that? So you get out of the water, you sit there, and then you, you can dive wherever you I mean, you can dive up until one minute before that five minute and then sit on the boat. And then you're good to go. And then you come in and you weigh it. But it's a two-day competition, and it's an aggregate. So, like, um, if I go out and I shoot 50 pounds worth of fish and I'm sitting in first place, I set the curve. I'm known as the 100%. If you go out and you shoot 40 pounds worth of fish, you have 80 points because you're 80% of my catch. You know what I mean? And then so going into day two, I go in with 100 points, you go in with 80 points. If the next day you're sitting in first place and you shoot um, 
you know, 50 pounds worth of fish and I only, sh- and I shoot 45 pounds worth of fish. Your two day score is 80 from the first day and hundred from the second day. And mine's is a hundred from the second day and 90 from the first mm. or whatever. And I have 190 points. So therefore I would win. Gotcha. Are you going to be able to bring your family out with you? Um, yeah, they're all going to come out actually. Cool. My mom, my dad, my wife, my daughter. Um, I think honestly there's like in total there's like 25 family members and friends coming up that's gonna be cool it should be really cool there's because there's a parade of nations there's it's a pretty big event in europe have you found that being a new father has changed your mindset at all um it when i go on trips and stuff it's it's crazy because you know you miss something that you never had to miss before if that makes any sense. Yeah, totally. You know, all of a sudden it's this new realm. You know, you miss your wife, you miss your girlfriend, you miss your friends. But, you know, missing your daughter is, or missing your child is at a whole nother world. You know, because it's a different type of love. You know, um, and especially she being so young, it's like when I leave for a week, I come back, I have a new child. Like all of a sudden she's sitting up or she's popped a tooth or she's crawling. You know, and it's like, whoa, that's so nuts. And, um... Yeah, it's been a wild ride for you over this last year. <laughs> it's been crazy, and I've gotten to do a lot of trips, and so coming back like is just a new child, you know. And she was six weeks early, so we spent a lot of time in the NICU with her, for, you know, three and a half weeks or so in the NICU. What's the NICU? Uh, the neonatal intensive care unit. Wow. Um, Whew, what was that like? That was gnarly. Like, it was, you know, because we knew she was like, we went in to go for a 34 week checkup like any other checkup and um that morning at like two o'clock in the morning my wife wakes up suddenly wakes up and goes to the bathroom and she comes back and she puts a towel down on the bed and i'm like you okay she's like i think i just leaked a little i was like you sure you didn't pee your pants because that's a, that's a common thing pregnant women pee their pants it just happens <laughs> but i was like you sure you didn't just pee a little don't laugh justin i know serious we're bad. talking about the miracle of childbirth <laughs> And I was like, you sure it wasn't just pee? She's like, yeah, it was just a little leap. I was like, you want to go to the hospital? She's like, no, nah, we got a doctor's appointment in a couple hours. And we deemed ourselves not to be that couple that went to the hospital like 10 times and got sent home. You're just not ready. Just wait. You're not ready. Just wait. You're not ready. And so we went in, you know, and the doctor checked. And she's like, oh, anything to note because everything looks good. She's like, no. Nah. I was like, this morning we had a little leakage. She's like, what do you mean by a little leakage? And Sonny's all like, oh, I had a little leak, like a little tinkle. And she's like, why didn't you call me? She's like, well, we didn't know. And she was getting contractions all morning. And we thought it was just Braxton Hicks, which is like false labor. Just, you know, and so I'd make fun of her, which is <laughs> in hindsight, you're like, oh, my God. Like, because she'd be, you know, we had she had tea that morning and uh, non-caffeine free tea before we went to the doctor's appointment. And, you know, like mid sip she'd get one of these contractions and she'd be like Ugh! and I was like what you kind of drink your tea what's the matter oh no <laughs> you know? oh. and you look back at it like I was a fucking asshole <laughs> <laughs> and, you know so we went in and the doctor's like why didn't you call me yada 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 and she's like this is something big like you guys got I'm gonna call the hospital right now the labor and delivery room in Waimea go there directly they'll know that you guys are there for and they're gonna get you guys admitted to see what's going on because if it is amniotic fluid, you have to be bread rested for the rest of your pregnancy. And we're probably going to fly you to Honolulu to the Women's and Civil's Hospital at Kapiolani. And uh, so we um, were like, okay. And Sally still didn't, gra- we still didn't grasp what was going on. Sally's like, can I go to my dentist appointment first? And the doctor's like, this is really serious. 
you have to go there. I was like, okay. So we go over there. They test it. It comes back positive for amniotic fluid. And we're like, oh, shit. Okay. And so the doctor comes in and says, okay, we're going to have to prep you to fly to Oahu. Um, we'll get the air ambulance here and everything like that. And we're going to try and keep the baby in you as long as possible. And uh, we'll try to keep you to 36 weeks, at least full term, uh, considered full term. And uh, like, okay, so two weeks in the hospital. That's going to be shitty, but okay. And um, the doctor's like, I just got to check to make sure that, you know, the baby's in the right position for you guys to, to fly. And she checked and she looked and she looked like, oh, you're having your baby today. And I was like, wait, 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 wait what? <laughs> you know, and she's like, oh, no, she's just almost about to crown. And I'm like, holy shit. And it's at like 10 o'clock in the morning. And I'm like, like, I'm in board shorts and a tank top. Sonali's in a bikini and a little throwover because we we're going to go to the beach after this. I was going to go diving. And I'm just like, wait, what? And she's like, yeah, your baby's coming. And I was like, I got a shit. And I literally had to go take a dump just because... <laughs> You know, and the doctors all like told my wife, my doctor's like, when you get that urge, it's time to push. Don't go to the bathroom unless you, you know, and so we're like, oh my God. So like, I, I gotta take a shit. <laughs> it seriously hit me like that. It was like, oh, oh my God. Like if this is real, this is going to happen today. And so they hook her up to the monitor and everything like that. And you know, we're sitting there and, um, what is that? Uh, the doctor comes in and she's like, okay, there's, there's three scenarios that's going to come up. First scenario, which is pretty rare, but if it happens, she baby comes out, it's perfect color, she's crying loud, she's happy, you guys don't need to go to Oahu. She says, that's going to be very, very rare. Second is probably what's going to happen. She's going to come out, we're going to look at her, she's going to be doing okay, but we're going to have to send you to Oahu. Um, third she comes out she's not doing good they scoop her they run her down the hallway and then you guys are gonna have to fly to Oahu immediately and I was like holy shit okay and so she starts pushing and you know they asked if she my wife wanted the epidural and they're like she's like no that's okay and I'm like wait what <laughs> you know what what if something happens you know it's already complicated already she's like I'll think about it and then before she thought about it it was too late to get the epidural and it was time to prep pushing and she pushed for like 40 minutes and as soon as my daughter came out they scooped her and ran her down the hallway and I was like you know as a new father I'm like what the fuck like that was that was three you know that was plan plan C I, that's that's not good you know and but as she was coming out like the umbilical cord was wrapped around her neck like there was a lot of like scary things and I was like oh my god and so they they rushed her down there and they're like dad you can come down you know I'm sitting there like this and I'm like are you okay suddenly she's like go check on Elle I'm like okay so I walked down there and I walked to into the room of her with every hose and cord wrapped around her breathing tubes and I'm just like what the fuck and I just sit there and it's you're just so helpless you know and I'm just sitting like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. And, um, you know, but she's breathing and everything like that. And they came in, took x-rays and everything, and then they came back in, and they're like, she's fine. Her lungs are good. We just, this is all precautionary. Her lungs are good, you know, and everything. So, you know, I was like, oh, okay, thank God. And I go back to Cell Sonali, and she still hasn't seen her daughter yet because she's post, you know, operation pregnant lady over there. Um, and... She can't move. She can't walk down to go see L. She's sitting there. And, you know, L's getting worked up and everything like that. And they're like, uh, I was like, do we need to go to Oahu? They're like, you're probably going to have to go to Oahu. I was like, okay. And 
but suddenly couldn't go to Oahu. You know, it was because she's still a patient herself. And so it was just me and Elle flew to Oahu. But we got before we got to fly, suddenly got to see Elle for a, a little bit and got to hold her chest to chest, which was pretty freaking amazing. And um, But flew to Oahu. The first night was so gnarly. You know, flying over to Honolulu with my daughter that, I, you know, I can touch her hand, but that's all I can touch. You know, and then she's hooked up to every machine and you're sitting there and every, like, beep that the machine makes, you think your daughter is, like, you know, you're just on crack the whole night and you get no sleep. You're there by yourself. I could only imagine what Sonny was like because she, she was, you know, we had some family with her, but she didn't get to see her kids. She was, it was just gnarly. And then, you know, slowly progressed in the hospital and we got to come home. But, you know, she was four pounds when she was born. She was five pounds when we came home and it was just gnarly. But she's happy, freaking crawling around, happy now. and Totally healthy now. Totally healthy. She exercises her lungs every now and then. <laughs> oh, Oh, that's a heavy story, it was, man. It was so gnarly. But you realize, like, in the NICU, how blessed I really was just for, I mean, my daughter, you know, was kind of a scary situation, but in the whole scheme of things, she was way better off and a lot healthier than a lot of the other babies that were there. And it's, you know, the dads all walk, roam the halls. The moms usually sit in the rooms, but the dads roam the halls and we end up talking to each other. And you realize, like, holy crap. And you get this, like, brotherhood with the guys that are there and you're just like, Bra, and you know, eventually you're like, I don't want to even want to say my daughter's story because, you know, she's healthy, she's happy, you know. Yeah, yeah, it was just not. Man, well, it's especially for you because, like, one thing that's that's unique about you is you are very good at staying calm in intense situations, whether it's diving 200 feet below the surface or bow hunting an elk, and. The difference between those experiences and this experience is, is like you still have some control over your over what's yeah. happening. When you're down there and you're like, okay, I know that I am this far down and I have, you know, a minute and a half left of breath, like it's still just the conversation mm-hmm. with you and, and it's your actions. But when something that you love that much is just completely out of your control. Yeah. Like, whew, I can't imagine, man. It was Narnos. And yeah, I remember last time you were on this podcast, you told the story of of your own um, childhood, oh. right? When you you had cancer when you were mm-hmm. a baby, right? And I was in the ICU at Kapiolani. Same one. Same one. Whew. Different ward, different side, but same hospital. You know, some of the nurses that were there, some of the old nurses were there, remembered my doctor, but. You know, this this was 30 years ago, so they're not the same nurses, but they remembered my doctors from there and everything like that. And I told them, I was like, I used to come over here with, you know, for my cancer treatment and everything like that. And But it's just kind of full circle. It was pretty crazy. Did you have any mantra that night, anything to just keep you through it? Or was it? It was just fear. I, like, you know, I, I'm not going to lie. I freaking cried. You know, sitting there by myself, I'm sitting there on the couch and I'm looking at my daughter and she's in this little incubator, you know, and you're just sitting there and you're just like, like you said, like a lot of my, my activities and my hobbies that make me, me, you know, um, are areas that, you know, where I can control, you know, I can, in control of my step forward, in control of diving down, you know, and all of a sudden it's like, no, I have, I can't do anything to help this situation. I can't hold my breath longer. I can't act calmer. I can't move slower. I just have to sit here and stand on the sidelines and watch. And it was like, well, man, I, 
cannot tell you how happy I am that <laughs> that all worked out. I wish you the best in Thank your you upcoming adventures, and it is always an honor and a privilege to speak with you, Justin it was Lee. So much fun. So much fun. You shot two pigs, harvested two pigs, shot a big boar that unfortunately we didn't get, but shot two pigs. You got a cooler full of fresh pork. We saw some sheep. You know, it was just an epic, epic day. Yeah, always is. Sweet. Thank you so much, sir. Yeah, man. And everyone, go follow at Big Isle Boy 24. Justin is one of the most legit humans I know. Over I and out. That. Peace. That's our show. I'm going to play you out with a song called Sabali by Amadeu and Miriam. They're a blind couple from the country of Mali, and they play some groovy tunes. Also, if you want to hear more from Justin, you can go back to episode number 27, where we did our first podcast together. Don't forget to donate on my website, kyle.surf, and that is also where you can become an Amazon affiliate, kyle.surf slash book club. And don't stress if you don't have cash, if it is difficult for you to buy me the equivalent of a cup of coffee every month just keep listening enjoy the show please give it a rating on itunes that is immensely important and helps other people find the show and it takes you all of two minutes over and out i got some great episodes for you coming up in the weeks ahead until then please enjoy this song sabali by amadeu and miriam
Bye-bye.